Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon. This is Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. My name is Pierre Vigilance, and I'm your host on the Junctional Thinking Podcast. And my career path has taken me through medical and public health training, all the way through to work in the nonprofit sector, academia, and government, and now into advisory consulting. And on that journey, I've gathered the perspective that, and an appreciation really for the fact that health is so much more than what health care and medicine can provide alone. It takes diverse, innovative partnerships to positively impact health outcomes. So this podcast is a place where we get to explore the creative problem-solving opportunities and innovations that exist at The Junction, a place that I define as the intersection of health and social impact interventions, pretty much just about everything. So every episode, we are joined by guests from a range of sectors with a commonality between them that they all in some way, shape or form impact health, from community engagement, user experience and creativity to housing, journalism, education, finance and healthcare. We delve into ways these innovative influences seek to impact social and health outcomes from their own unique perspectives. And today, we're sort of turning to a bit of a transportation lens, but somewhat of a futurist lens with a, an old friend who uh, has have had the, 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 the fortune to be able to serve in government with um, here in the District of Columbia a few years back when he was the director of transportation. His name is Gabe Klein, um, and uh, we've stayed in touch and, and been able to do some work together since then. I'm really appreciative of his time today and being willing to come in and sit down and chop it up a little bit, talk about a few different things related to the work that he's been doing and his journey with respect to this junctional thinking piece that we've been talking about over the course of this season. So, Gabe, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Dr. V, which is what I call uh, <laughs> Pierre Vigilance. And uh, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, we've known each other for 10 years. Yes, about 10 that. Years. Yeah. Um, we used to even run around and go get drinks, you know, and now we're that eating happened. chocolate cookies instead. That happened. Chocolate cookies and, and, and pretzels. Uh, shout out to the Line Hotel yes. pretzel people here. And the flourless cookies are off the chain. That was very good. So Super now your sugar good. levels are going to be very high, and you may say some things that we can't really, yeah. we may have to edit out. You have to have the bleep button ready. Okay. All right. <laughs> just changed the whole show. Um, so... Something that I know we've talked a, bit, a little bit about in the past is sort of this notion that, that we call junctional thinking. It's these five skills, behaviors, and ideals that make people great at intersecting with a number of different sectors in the work that they do. And you and the work that you've done and in your career have done anything but walked in a straight line from one place to the next. You've used a number of different twists and turns. And so you've been effective in a number of these uh, spaces that we refer to as the, the five SBIs. So being a, a, an, an eternal l- learner, now talk to us a little bit, if you would, about sort of when you think about learning from people mm-hmm. or learning from experiences, sort of how do you walk into things and sort of say, look, I'm going to actually 
get something from this and give something to it as well. And is that a mentality that you have that you think about or is it something that just happens naturally? Yeah, it's interesting. I've never thought of it that way. And just to give people a little background, I spent um, most of my career in the private sector in uh, varied startups like Zipcar, um, my own electric organic food truck company I had with some partners, uh, my own advisory services firm, and then uh, worked with Pierre in D.C. government for Adrian Fenty, running the transportation department, and then the Chicago Department of Transportation for Rahm Emanuel. And so I have taken this sort of weird, circuitous route um, as has uh, uh, Pierre, but it's been an amazing route because you you get to learn so much. And, and I feel like the value, by the way, of working in everything from an established company to a startup to a nonprofit to uh, uh, local government uh, or even state or federal, but local is where the action is, is that you get to learn so much um, across the uh, transom. You know, for instance, business, like when I was in business, I felt like government could be a partner, but they're almost always like the enemy, mm. you know, mm. and it was a battle dealing with government. And so um, getting to work in government, I realized, oh, government's not the enemy. They just they don't have all the tools. They see each other through a certain see themselves, excuse me, through a certain lens, which can be very limiting. Right. And now the work that I do is really to sort of bridge those two and get government uh, NGOs and philanthropy and um uh, companies, uh, small or large, to work together right. on co-creating solutions, and and so that's what I get excited about. Thank, and, and I apologize for not asking you to do that intro, okay. you know, beforehand. I appreciate you doing that. But so, in 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 being in those different sectors, then, um, are there are there the same type of takeaway that you get from the different sectors, or do you get something very different from each place? Yeah. So. Well, and then your original question for me last was um, sort of why, like, why am I motivated to think this way to like right, find right, solutions? Exactly. And, when you when you're in those places, sort yeah. of What is it that sort of gets you to that, that switch to click? So there's sort of like nature versus nurture. I mean, I definitely came from like a family of entrepreneurs, and um, they were always looking to solve problems. My, my dad was a entrepreneur in the '50s, and then he was a civil rights activist in the '60s, and right. then he was an entrepreneur again, and so I think it was sort of instilled in me that you're always trying to make things better for people, right. whether it's in like bicycle stores and giving people active transportation during the energy crisis or, um, you know, trying to free people from uh, sort of lack of opportunity and options uh, due to systemic racism. And so I think when you're brought up in that way, you view everything as uh, potentially good. And so I grew up wanting to merge all of that and thinking that if I could uh, take business and look at, at it as an opportunity to create change, like a lot of people view government, then it would be much more interesting to me. And so um, that's how I've attacked all my private sector jobs. And I think that's why I personally got the, um, you know, I got people looking at me for government because they're like, oh, you know, like an, an entrepreneur that wants to do good, um, that's what we need more of in government. That's what Adrian Fenty wanted. Right, right, right. That's, that's, that's an interesting quest point you make there, and it sort of makes me think of conversations I was having yesterday with a, an impact investment group that I'm working with, and this notion of doing well and doing good yes. at the same time has become more of a, I don't want to call it a thing, because it's a, I find it appropriate, but it wasn't necessarily, hasn't been necessarily how investors have looked at 
ways and reasons to do certain investments, particularly yep. in disenfranchised, distressed communities, right? Yep. So the idea that you as somebody who on the private side was seen as being someone who wanted to do good and people wanting to bring that mentality into government, do you think that that's what also made you attractive to the folks in Chicago with respect to sort of why Rahm Emanuel thought, well, this might be a good person to have come and do some transportation-related work here? I certainly hope so. I mean, I think, because you also asked, like, <laughs> what was a question behind? Mm-hmm. You asked, um, you, you know, sort of like um, why I guess I would do these things. And, and I mean, I think that I view, or, or how they were different, right? And so in the in the startup world, you got to move quickly. Like, you, you throw something out in the street and you sort of gauge the reaction to it. And then you iterate on it, and you're like, okay, people don't like tacos. Do they like barbecue? Or that, you know, uh, oh, they want healthier options. You know, and so you're constantly iterating on your business model. Whereas, government does a whole bunch of planning often behind behind closed doors, like it's an opaque agency. Right. And then, boom, they they put it out there for the public. Um, and so it's a very different mentality. And so, like the mentality I took into uh, government was like, hey, let's be more open and transparent. Like, we don't know everything. We don't have all the answers. We mm-hmm. want you to participate with us. Mm-hmm. And we want to um, experiment with you on your streets uh, with new services. And so I think that mentality is important. And I think this idea we have, particularly in American society, but also in Asian society and elsewhere, like, hey, we have to, like, put out to the world that we're perfect. Like, like that's our goal is to oh, even Instagram, you know, everything. It's like, I'm so happy. I'm so perfect. It's not the reality of people's lives, and it's not like if you set that expectation, whether you're in government or the private sector, people are going to hold you to that, okay. right? Okay. And then you're constantly falling down. And I think there's an opportunity to co-create by being like, "Hey, I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. Right. The marketing's not perfect. Work with me, public, private, whatever. Let's figure this out together." Okay. No, I love that. I love that. So you you are listening to the Junctional Thinking podcast on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Annals Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Pierre Vigilance, and you are listening to the sage wisdom of Gabe Klein, former <laughs> uh, director of transportation here in Washington, D.C., as well as in Chicago, and now uh, principal at his own firm and an advisor to a number of different firms that do work primarily in the transportation space, I think it's fair to say, but also smart in cities. Sort of smart cities. Yeah, yeah. Technology often is like, it's technology in a lot of different areas. Mobility is very hot right now. Right. And it's like, how do you facilitate positive change? And people, as you know, uh, Pierre, people often think that the technology is a solution. It's just a tool. Right. It's a t- right. A tool for people. And you mentioned just now something to do with working with people. Oftentimes, I think we come to places with problem solving in our head that is for people because we've already decided that this is what they need. Um, and this sort of segues me into the question in the second SBI, which is this move from the learning piece to the listening piece and the influencing. Like, how how do you, when you receive information from different sources, um, are, you, are you looking to do something differently in how you sort of hear, hear from people? Like, do you yeah. go out of your way to hear from a lot of different people? Or are there some typical sources to which you go for information? Well, I think it's easy to have a whole bunch of preconceived notions about what people need. Absolutely. You know, you see people like, hey, this old white community needs this and this Latino community needs this. And the reality is until you go to people in their community, not just, you know, have some online session, but actually go and talk to people and 
have them show you what they want and need on their turf, I think it's very hard to, to judge. And the interesting thing is that's what entre, uh, entrepreneurs do. Like uh, this company that Fontanelle's partners uh, invested in, which I'm also, uh, I, I work with them out of Detroit, um, they were doing fractional phone service. So okay. like, you know, I have a $180 plan on my phone, but if you're low income, you know, you can't afford that. And so maybe you don't have internet access on your phone. You don't have Facebook. Right. So they came up with a model where for 25 cents for a couple hours, you can get Facebook. Mm. Uh, for a dollar a day, you can get access to, you know, a whole bunch of, of, of internet services. And so the way they learned about it, they went and worked in soup kitchens for six months to figure okay. out how do people in lower in, in income communities, I mean, like homeless people, how do they communicate? Okay. And that was really instrumental. And like, I think government needs to do more of that. Interesting. Let me be cynical for a moment about that, though. Sure. Because, and, and full disclosure, this is somewhat influenced by two hours that quite shocked me in watching The Great Hack on Netflix. I have not seen that uh, yet. Yes, it's, um, you know, uh, big data, Cambridge Analytica. Oh, God. Okay. And, and the notion that there's deliberacy with respect to gaining access to people's information in mm -hmm. order to figure out whether or not they are they can be turned in one direction or another by being provided certain feeds of information. Right. And I think that the way we look at some of these opportunities, we might say, well, this might influence somebody to do something different that is good for them. Mm -hmm. But in these instances, in the U.S., Brexit, Trinidad, other places elections seem to have been um, adjusted, if oh, yeah. you will, by virtue of some of this information um, sort of chain. Consumption, too. The consumption part and also sort of the access part. Mm -hmm. When we do this, what do you call it, fractional phone service, for example, does it basically provide access to something for a small amount of money, but in order to basically provide access? company's called a uh, Lunar, by the way. Out of Detroit. Okay, yeah. so we, we, we like this company, evidently. <laughs> I, I think it's cool, and their model's changing a little bit because it's very hard to make money in just a low-income community. How do, we, how do we monitor that and make sure that the information that we get from those interactions, though, mm -hmm. is used for the purposes that we feel are good and appropriate versus some other things? I mean, is that part of the conversation? Well, that's a really hard thing to do, right. but that's why you need government regulation. I mean, you know, the government has been for the most part, absent from the big data conversation. Mm. And they have been sort of anti-regulation. Um, and I would argue over the last few presidents. And so, you know, the FTC, for instance, fined Uber, uh, I think, a couple billion dollars. And they got like a 20-year uh, 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 sort of settlement that they have to subscribe to. And, and so, you know, and what uh, Facebook just got a $5 billion fine. Right. Actually, maybe Uber's was smaller. But anyway, so you have these big fines, but like where was the government in regulating this? And so this is something I've learned working in government is it's not enough just to empower the private sector to go innovate. Um, you have to have some level of regulation, some adherence to privacy rules, for instance. And so with um, GDPR in uh, Europe and now the Cal ECBA uh, for government and uh, there's... Uh, uh, there's another one that, that's like GDPR that's being instituted in California. They're really working on like, okay, how do we protect consumers' rights? How do we make it so you have to opt 
in to give data versus opt out. out. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really important stuff. And I think data has become a currency. It has. And there was an article actually here in the Washington Post three weeks ago, four weeks ago, where this guy uh, looked at all the trackers on his iPhone. And, you know, Apple's been pretty pro-privacy. And he had like 5,400 pings to his iPhone over the course of a week while he was sleeping. So you had companies in like, you know, overseas that knew that he was sleeping, knew where he was. Right. right? Absolutely. And the thing is, we've all traded that for free apps, basically. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yes. I think that there is this, there's this delicacy to it. And there's definitely some intention that has to be had at the front end as these things get developed. And, and some attention to what sort of what they may mean for the not just the users but the people who aren't using them so this is sort of why i wanted to mention that was you've got um i know something that's been in dc recently and now i just saw something the other day about the potential for dc bringing another ride share opportunity to the city so you were obviously involved with bike share mm-hmm. here in, in dc and then there was there's been um, the dockless bike piece, which mm-hmm. I think dockless bikes are now done, right? I mean, I haven't seen... Well, so the initial surge of dockless bikes was, I guess, 2017. Okay. You know, um, Mobike, Obike, a lot of Chinese companies. Right. The model didn't really work well. It's like too cheap. And right. the bikes were crappy, right? Okay. Now you got scooters that have replaced them. Right, the scooter piece. That's... And you got electric uh, e-bikes, like electric the jump e-bikes. bikes. Now the scooter piece is the... Are we, you're talking about the sort Lime, of like the Lime and Lime Bird and all those. Spin. Spin is a great company. Uh, yes, yes, okay. So there's some, some, pl- some plugging going on. Yeah, that's good. But then there's also, but is, that, is that the scooter piece that I just saw recently? I thought I saw something else about mopeds. There are mopeds. So DC, I would say since Dan Tangerlini ran DDOT, you know, back in the early 2000s, before I came on the scene, I mean, I was in the private side at Zipcar and stuff, but... Um, DC has become like the uh, San Francisco of the East Coast for transportation okay. experimentation. And so people come here first now to test their wares. Uh, you have a lot of companies that will only be operating the first year in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Revel is this new company with uh, motorized, well, I guess motorized is the right term, but electric full-size scooters. And uh, you have companies like uh, Skip that only operated in San Francisco and DC. So it's a real proving ground. And right now we're going through this time where there's a lot of VC money flowing and there's a lot of um, opportunity to put together a business with micro mobility or small format uh, vehicles that are electric, throw them on the street with an app and see if people use them. Right. So it is, which is a mixed piece. I think I like the idea and I think it's, a, it's good because I had somebody in the housing space say to me years ago that DC is a place where great ideas come to die. Um, but it's great. Maybe Capitol Hill. It's great to hear that, you know, that there are opportunities where things don't come necessarily to die but to sort of be, to be tried out. And so there's some leadership in that and I think that that's good. I want to, when we come back from the break in a second, talk a little bit about what that means with respect to some of the equity related things mm-hmm. like who has access and yeah. all that sort of stuff so you are uh, with us here on the Junctional Thinking podcast here on Full Service Radio broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan Washington DC my guest today is Gabe Klein and um, I am your host Pierre Vigilance and we'll be back in just a couple minutes
welcome back. This is Pierre Vigilance with the Junctional Thinking Podcast, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, D.C. on Full Service Radio. Um, you are listening to uh, the episode where Gabe Klein, former Director of Transportation here in the District and um, in Chicago, is talking to us about a number of different things that we were just having a conversation about um, the leadership that the district is showing in um, allowing, if you will, or engaging with mobility companies and facilitating some of the shared bike um, bike share companies or, or mobility sharing platforms, bikes, yep. scooters, and potentially now mopeds. Um, but we've we've had, and I know that you've been engaged in smart city conversations in a few different places, and we've had conversations between us about. Know, what does it mean to have this type of access in certain places versus others? So, you know, I'm uh, in and out of multiple cities, and usually when I see a bike share rack show up in an area that doesn't look that built up, it means that someone's done their research, and soon thereafter, there's going to be some three, four, five hundred thousand dollar houses in the area, right? It depends, and yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that that's you know so, mm-hmm. and or there's some there's some longer term intention. There's a there's a plan, right? And I know that um, you know um, Fred Itan, who works over at Kaiser, did some interesting work a couple of years ago looking at bike share in Southeast Washington D.C., so east of the river, and how were those bikes used versus other places? You talk a bit about sort of the the equity lens with respect to sort of who uses the bikes and, and whether or not it's and what they use for and whether or not this is about transportation or recreation or both and health sort of how does that work right yeah. exactly exactly well it, it's it's a really complex conversation yep, absolutely and one of the reasons why you want to encourage the experimentation is because it is so complex that sometimes it's easier to try different options and let people decide versus dictate to them what they should do. And, you know, what we do in affluent communities is give them lots of options, right? We give people lots of options. Unless I have, I will say there's a lot of car-dependent rich places where they don't have a lot of options. But for the most part, in urban areas, you'll see like in Adams Morgan or, or Columbia Heights or DuPont Circle, you'll see tons of car-sharing vehicles, bike share, scooters, everything, right? So when we launched Capital Bike Share, we were like, well, we got to have equal distribution. You know, even though we know there's going to be a, a, a you know, quick adoption in these communities area, in like Ward right, 1 or Ward 2, else. we're putting them in, in Ward 8. And so we did drop a lot of bike share in there. And I feel like, and they didn't get used. We didn't do a great job marketing or explaining what it was. We just literally dropped it in from space. Then we realized, okay, we need to go market it. But for whatever reason, um, the community never totally embraced it. There were some people that use it every day. Like, they use it as a last mile to transit and stuff. But when the dockless bikes came in, the dockless scooters, for some reason, communities of color really embraced those devices. Why? I have no idea. Was it an association? Was it the pricing? Was it that you could pay per use versus having a membership? membership. I mean, there's a lot of different possibilities, but you needed a credit card for both. So... Um, that's why like, I was so surprised by the uptake and, and by the different types of people using different services. And that's another reason to do what DDOT is doing now and what we tried to do when I was there, which is like, let people come experiment on the streets as long as it's safe, 
and equitable. And so you'll see with the scooter pilots, they have to re redistribute the scooters in all eight wards every day, which is a big requirement. And they have a cap. They can only have so many. So to be honest, it's hard to make any money doing what they're doing, but okay. they're hoping they're ho hoping they're hoping that over time it can be expanded and be a much larger program. And to be honest, we have no limit on the number of cars allowed in the city. So at some point we will have to say as many scooters or bikes as we want. At the same time as as many cars as we want? Or well, what do you what's your what are your thoughts on limiting yeah. that piece of things? So there's two levers that cities have to really make change in this area. One is pricing and one is reallocation of space, right? You only have so much space um, and uh, you, can, you can tax things, right? Or you can bring in lower cost options and subsidize them. And so um, we've got all these less expensive options. Um, now what we got to do is reallocate space in the streets, which has been hard to do traditionally. Uh, we were one of the earliest cities to do it, as well as New York and Portland and a couple others. So it's getting easier now that you have everybody in the city using these services for right. the most part. I mean, right. you know, not a lot of elderly people, okay, but Granted. people of every color, uh, you know, background, socioeconomic. So now it's easier to say, okay, everybody's using it. We need to reallocate space and make it safer for people. Right. That has a big impact, and then it becomes faster as well. Right. And the, sp and, and the safety piece, I know Nashville, you know, recently with the, with mm -hmm. the tragedy there, um, with the scooter piece of things, not to sort of harp on it, but it certainly was, mm -hmm. it's an issue with respect to, and, there, and there's some ways that people may not be aware of to switch scooters off at a certain time of night and, or to geofence certain areas so that speed can be limited yeah. so there are some interesting technology opportunities to improve safety yeah. but there also needs to be some some common sense and some appropriateness on the part of users which we can't always necessarily trust people to do particularly if things are going to be available late at night after socializing etc so well, i think that there's a there's a blend to some of that so it's interesting it's a great point and in california in, in la like They've geofenced them off of the, the Venice boardwalk, for instance, okay. for safety of pedestrians. In Providence, they've told the operators, you can't operate at night right. when it's dark. Uh, in D.C., they've lowered the speed limit. Like Typically, these things go 15 to 17 miles an hour. Right. They've lowered to 10, which means they have to set the computers and the scooters to max out at 10. And right. you can argue whether that's appropriate or not. Right. Like In that example, I think we need to raise it up to 15, okay. but then say they're not allowed on any sidewalk. Oh, okay. Right. I mean, you can place it on a sidewalk, but... Right, you need to park it on a sidewalk, but yeah, how but, would you prevent someone from riding it on a sidewalk? Can, you, can geofencing be that specific? It can't be right now because the, the towers are not that specific. Right. Um, however, you can enforce it. Right. You know, and that may be what you need to do. To do. Right. And that's why we have something called the mobility data specification, which I've been involved in, which has become international, which is to give cities access to all the data, well, a subset of the data flowing from these devices. Right, right. And so what I want, hopefully, what listeners get from this is, because I know sometimes folks hear me talking about this this podcast and the the, the, funct, the, the function of junctional thinking. Well, um, <laughs> the definition like of junctional thinking. <laughs> and... Um, and they sort of, they sort of, there's a bit of quizzicalness, like, well, how does that intersect with health? But we just had a brief conversation about safety, you know, tr figuring out how to reduce the likelihood of bad outcomes for people, like mortality, traffic-related mortality. And I know that you've talked a lot about, you have your TED Talk and other places where mm -hmm. you've talked about just how prevalent 
like traffic mortality or traffic related mortality is as a cause of death the world oh, yeah. over right yeah because and it's horrible here we talk about gun deaths all the time right the reality is we have as many uh car fatalities in the u.s and we accept it as like the cost of being able to move around yeah and it's just like it's the number one killer of young people 10 to 19 uh in the u.s and worldwide so I think we need to address the gun violence thing. Yeah, for sure. Because it, it is a different, I mean, yeah, tr- different. truly numbers-wise, yeah, comparing the numbers. and just Because I, I know how you feel about that bit. I yeah. don't want anyone to walk away with, because oh, no, someone no. did come out with that recently. So more people die from X, Y, Z things. We should be paying more attention to those things. No. This gun violence piece is, you know, and definitely That's uh, huge. a nod and sort of definite thoughts and prayers go out to those communities recently impacted by the gun violence in this country. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big piece, day to day, the piece of the deaths well, that happen on the roads. And also you and I have talked about, I mean, death is a horrible thing, but living your life in an unhealthy way and feeling crappy all the time because you sit in a car in a sedentary lifestyle and eat bad food is also not great. And I think that one of the great things about active mobility, whether it's walking, um, walking to the bus, right. uh, biking, scooting, although scooting is not as active as biking, is that you're, you're burning calories, you're getting your heart rate up. Yeah. This you're is what we used to do. Like, we, yeah. are, we have a huge obesity problem in this country, and a lot of it is related to sedentary lifestyle and sitting in cars for two, three hours a day uh, right. in our commutes. So this is, thank you so much. This stuff. And I, what I love about the folks who come on this show is that we don't rehearse any of this, but the conversations naturally flow into these sort of lobbed balls where we're able to sort of smack them out the park with other conversations that are very much health-oriented, but at the same time social impact-oriented and very timely. Um, you are listening again to uh, Gabe Klein, my guest today here on Full Service Radio on the Junctional Thinking Podcast, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. And what you're making me think about is, you know, another friend of, of mine, actually, who you know as well, Junius Carter, shout out to Junius, mm-hmm. was in Philadelphia uh, last weekend and uh, came by with, um, an imp- I think it's called an Impossible Burger or something like oh, that. Yeah, you may yeah. have heard of this thing. Yeah, um, I've, I've the, tried the, one. The, the meatless, and I tried a piece of it, and I was like, if you hadn't told me, I wouldn't have known, right? And, you know, and we were having a conversation and talking about it. And uh, I was reminded that, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce had sort of invested in the company. that does. So there's some interesting partnerships that are coming up around different things. Or like, Nas. Nas invested in Lyft. Oh, so there you go. This type yeah. of thing. So yeah. if you had it your way, because another one of these SBIs is the notion of being a great partner. If you had it your way and you could partner with anybody with respect to the work that you're doing, who would you who would you want to partner with? Wow, like fantasy. Um, I used to say Richard Branson, and I, I had the opportunity to work with them a bit. Um, I mean, our ex president, who you know, at one point the rumor was he was going to go into venture capital. We're talking about Barack Obama. Here. Yes, okay, yes, okay, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that would be amazing. Like, I think. I think um, there are people out there that have talent and skills that they may not even be aware of. They, right. they could do totally different things. But to your, to your point, though, um, this is why business can be so important, like whether it's the Impossible Burger you know, or whether it's Spin or, or, or a bike share company like Jump. You know, entrepreneurs can make really positive social change. 
I mean, meat is a huge problem, not only, you know, for CO2 emissions and methane and all of that, but also we're, you know, we're, we're killing ourselves by eating red meat all the time. And so those entrepreneurs that have created Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger and all of that um, are potentially creating very positive change. Right. Now, there is some sort of greenwashing that can happen. Right. You know, like, is it as healthy as they say? It, like, like Jewel with their smokeless cigarettes. Ooh, yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah, good, yeah, good example, right? Exactly. Sort of came out as an opportunity and now has sort of morphed into this serious threat. Or um, even Lyft and Uber. Okay. A study came out that they actually funded saying they're adding to congestion a lot in cities. So right. I think without any regulation, things that could be really good can turn out to be really bad. And it's, it's, it's a... That's why government has to have a light touch in some sense, but also be willing to put the hammer down. Right. And one of the things that I work with government on and businesses is like, can we get comfortable enough where we can co-create solutions together before you right. launch the product? Right, right. And I think that there's something that there's an opportunity to do that um, using a number of different tools. If if both partners are not necessarily going to be mindful at the outset of what could happen with respect to volume um, or what happens once you get to scale, putting some metrics into the early sort of prototype and experimental phase of things, the way that you do with social impact bond Mm -hmm. creation and those pay for success transactions, where you say, okay, we're doing this with X number of people right now. We're looking to see what the return is going to be. Yes, success with the return meant this number of people didn't have this particular outcome. What does this look like at scale? And what are the potential challenges we're going to deal with at scale that regulation may need to be put in place before the government becomes the primary funder of of the activity? So I think that um, some of the environmental impact bond Mm -hmm. stuff uh, is sort of looking in that direction. But um, I think we have to be much more mindful of of how we do that going forward. Well, also, government does not have a good track record of looking at return on investment. Right. And... Uh, the private sector doesn't have a good track record of looking at total uh, social benefit or costs, right? And so some of the work that we've been doing, and, you know, we're a small company at, at CityFi, but we've been working with cities to figure out, like, can we build a calculator that shows the total social cost benefit of investing in um, certain forms of transportation right. or, or allowing in a certain uh, number of scooters, right? And can you, because we don't look at the health and sustainability outcomes. So we'll build a, uh, a road, we'll spend $10 million a mile to build it. We won't even account necessarily for the maintenance cost down the road. Right. But we also won't account for the environmental damage that we're doing, all the cars that go across it. Okay, right, after it's built, or even in building it, right? right. In, in doing it. And the same thing with, with construction, right? We say, okay, we're going to drop this building over here. Mm-hmm. That puts certain things out into the atmosphere that may not have been there before, may kick off acute respiratory conditions that sure. people have in that community. And then there's misunderstanding for, well, why is there an uptick in the number of kids going to the emergency department for acute asthma exacerbations? Right. Has it got anything to do with the with the construction? Could absolutely. Or a coal-fired power plant, you know, or, or something like that, or fracking in downtown L.A. I was on the roof of the mayor's office, and I looked, and I was like, what is that thing going up and down? That's fracking in L.A., in the city. Wow. So there's a lot of things that people aren't, aren't aware of, and now there's a lot of digital modeling. So there's something called the digital twin, which I saw in Singapore in 2016. You're starting to see more cities look at it where you can 
create a completely digital model of the physical city. And then before you go build that building, you can uh, model it and see what the impacts are immediately, but also over like a 30 year time period. And the problem with our country is we're so focused on like quarter to quarter profits, short term gains that um, we don't we don't instinctively say, well, what's the long term impact of this on our health, sustainability and ultimately on, on, on our pocketbook? So this sort of segues very nicely into the, the last of the of the SBIs, which is which is this notion of patience, right? And are we willing to be patient about not only the investments but also um, trying to drive to outcomes over just outputs? So creating yeah. that road, we can say, okay, let's forget the finance. What mm. we need a road. How, how much do we need to build it? X amount of money. Let's build the road. So we build the road. That's an output. We've done right. it. It's done. But there are outcomes as a result of that. Some of the easy ones are it's reduced the amount of time it took to get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the other outcomes? Right. And which are the good ones and which are the bad ones? And how do we mitigate the sort of the bad ones and sort of promote the good ones? And do we want to, because of the bad ones, mm-hmm be more patient in how we develop this thing because some of those bad ones may outweigh the good ones. Well, that's exactly right. And the problem is that there's a long tail of bad outcomes. Right. And because there's so many small ones, we typically ignore them. And we just look at the big return or the like, how fast can we move traffic? Right. And the often that long tail outweighs it. So with this work we've been doing actually in, in Miami, We've been looking at the um, the fixed costs and the variable costs, and a lot of those are variable costs. Yes, and um, it's amazing when you actually attach a figure to all of it. You're like, holy shit! Like it's a lot, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's something else I was going to say though on this long topic. tail um, patience. I'm just trying to sort of patience, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think that we looking we, at outcomes down the road. Well, the outcome. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so the outcomes. It's we get people coming to us like at city file all the time. They basically say, we want to build this road. Mm-hmm. Can you help us figure out how to build it and how to get, get it through the government and da, da, da. So we put them through this process, which we call the waterfall where we first es- establish their values. Then we go through the vision and mission and we get down to like, um, tactics and resources. Right. But we find that often people come to us with, we need to figure out the tactics and resources. So when somebody comes to us and says, we need to build a road. We say, no, no, no. I don't know if you need to build a road. They're like, what are you talking about? We definitely yes. need to build a road. And I say, what do you want to do? Well, we want people to be able to move from here to here and here to here. And I'm like, okay, so you want mobility for people. What else do you want? Well, right. we, we, we want it to be equitable. So, and we're working on this project in Baltimore right now where we're doing this. And they're like, well, we want it to be equitable. We want everybody to be able to have access. We want it to be frictionless and seamless. We want it to be healthy. And I'm like, okay, so you don't want to build the road then. They're like, what are you talking about? Well, yes. you have a light rail down the road. You've got... Yeah. So other assets that could yeah. meet your particular mission, but your you know your vision is basically that of a road, and we and right. you try to reframe that vision for them, but still get them to the outcome that they have said that they've wanted. But and you have to tease that out. Of you them. have to tease it out, and the beauty is, oh, it's eighty percent cheaper. Oh, and there are other private sector companies that are willing to come in and provide all this mobility. So wait a second, you're telling me I can save eighty percent, have better outcomes, and not build the road? Yes. That in and of itself, first of all, appreciate the process, love the process, but that in and of itself calls for your client in this instance to be willing to listen to you, learn from you, be patient, 
You see what I'm saying? Be open to. Work so you're almost us, making yeah. them. You're making them junctional thinkers too, because you're telling them we. You need to do some of these things, and we can actually save you money and still get you the outcome that it is that you're looking for and wanting. Not well, only for you, but also for the people who you serve. It's sort of like being a therapist, because yes. like if you've ever been to therapy. You know, you sit there and you expect the therapist to drop all this knowledge on you. Right. But really, they ask you some key, key questions and you talk for 45 minutes about your problems and you leave and you figured out some of the answers yourself right. and they've given you some feedback. Right. I think that's the process that we need to go through is like get people to dig a little bit deeper into like what are the outcomes and like, OK, so you say you want it to be environmentally sustainable, but it's not. Right. Right. So let's figure out how to create something that is. But we go to the knee jerk like, oh, this is what I've always done. Yeah, it's, it's funny. On a, on a very simple level, it's funny you mentioned that sustainability piece, and I'm going to sort of put some people out here with this, and if they listen to it, it might get a little bit perturbed at me. So there was, <laughs> some, there was some folks on a very simple level wanted to do a, um, a cookie challenge. Um, and I'm eating a cookie. And, well, but you're eating a great cookie from the Lion Hotel <laughs> in flourless. Washington, D.C. It's flourless, and it's tasty and mm. lovely. Um, but they wanted to do a cookie challenge, and I said, well, we are in an institution that espouses itself as being about health. Should we be doing a cookie challenge in the traditional way of cookie mm -hmm. challenges? Or should we be doing a cookie challenge that maybe promotes the best clean cookie, one that's made in a way that has got ingredients in it that are really good for you and yeah. tasty, and it's good. You, you can sustain eating this because mm -hmm. it's not going to throw your sugar off. And folks shut down who are just like, oh, no, we're not interested in that because we just want to make a cookie. It's like, okay, look, <laughs> why don't you figure out how to make a better cookie? Yeah. And you can still have the outcome of you wanting getting that sweetness and you wanting that treat. But I can, we can reframe how you think about the cookie and how you think about what, you put, what you're putting into yourself yeah. and why that might be important. Because you may be the diabetic who shouldn't be eating the cookie anyway. Right. Or shouldn't be eating as many of them as you're eating. But if you make them with medjool dates and flakes of coconut, little recipe I have, separate mm, show all together. I love coconut. I love raw coconut cookies. But See? Then, yeah. then maybe we should, that's, maybe, that's we should start idea. a maybe business. Maybe we should do it. Okay. But, but this, is, this is very interesting, this example, because it goes back to your first original question, um, which was around, like, why do you always want to improve things? Right. I don't think you should ever rebuild, like, if you repave a street or you're making a new cookie recipe, whatever it is, like don't do the same thing exactly the same, unless right. it's perfect and people love it, right? Right. But why not always try to improve something? Don't right. put the same lane striping down if you know it's not safe. So I think certain people are driven, could be the way you're brought up, it could be the culture of the, of the business you're in or the government right. agency, but we gotta change the culture so people are always trying to iterate and improve. Improve and get to the outcomes, drive yes. to outcomes, not just outputs. Look, we could be, talking for a long time and, and I know that um, maybe we need to do a part two to this sure I definitely appreciate you taking the time to come out to talk to me and our listeners about sort of your your mentality and insights and sort of thoughtfulness with respect to the processes and the types of work that you do and hopefully people get a better understanding of some of the mobility related challenges that we deal with and it's not just as simple as oh they just just decided to put this thing down so thank you oh absolutely um, again this is a uh, Pierre Vigilance, the host of Junctional Thinking podcast on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Adams Morgan Hotel in Washington, D.C. You have been listening to Gabe Klein, CEO and founder of Cityfy, um, advisor in numerous technology and other spaces related to mobility, etc., and former 
director of transportation here in the district as well as in Chicago. And thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can go to cityfi.co or gabeklein.com if you want to learn more. And there that is. And we <laughs> will see you next time. Thank All right. You.